I am the number one obstacle in my life. The thing that's always going to keep me from being the person God wants me to be is me. The greatest temptations I face, it's me. My desires, my pride, my ego, it's always me. It's not my circumstances, it's not people around me, it's not what other people have done to me or haven't done to me, it's not that I've gotten a bad uh, deck of cards in the game of life, it's me. And Paul picks up on that and he says, don't you see, this is what we need to lay down, the sinful desires of the flesh. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Natasha Brody. I have been coming to Gateway for about two and a half years. I lead the Route 77 Ministries and host the Route 77 Podcast. Today, I will be reading from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is the word of the Lord. Stephen Ambrose wrote a book called Nothing Like It in the World. And in that book, he talked about the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is considered to this day to be one of the greatest engineering feats of the 19th century. And as this was just getting underway, there was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement because they felt that this could really change things in the United States. So one person had an idea. They said, to kick things off, why don't we have a bit of a ceremony, a bit of a party? We'll invite important people from near and from far, and the crescendo moment will be when we lay down the first rail, take the first spike, and we slam it into the ground. Everyone seemed to think that was a pretty cool idea, and so that's exactly what they did. They invited dignitaries and other important people, and they said, this is the day we're going to meet. Here's where we're going to meet. It's going to be great. Come on out. Now, here's where things get really interesting. One of the key investors was a gentleman by the name of Collis Potter Huntington. We have a picture of him. Here he is. And uh, he was one of the, the big four investors who made this project possible. And when he got word of this, immediately, of course, of course he was invited to this, but immediately he declined. And he sent a telegram with these words. Let me read them to you. If you want to jubilate over driving the first spike, go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there look too ugly. We may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know it as we can. And then he says this. This is kind of the the quotable quote that has been used so many times uh, in the United States. 
anybody can drive the first spike, but there are many months of labor and unrest between the first and the last spike. And that's a truism for life if there ever was. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is hard. Amen? Starting well is easy. Finishing well is hard. Let's just face it. I was the best husband on the wedding day. But from getting from there to here, that's a whole lot harder. Julie and I, this past week, we celebrated 13 years of marriage. And some of you are like, Justin, that's child's play. Come talk to me when you get to 30 or 40 or 50 years. That's something. And it's been tough to get from there to here. Starting well is easy, but finishing well is hard. And the Apostle Paul wants to pick up on this theme for us Today And so let's just remind ourselves of some of the things that we have learned um, over the course of the last few months as we've been in this series. The Apostle Paul has walked us through nine chapters of absolutely grueling teaching. Here's a couple of the themes he picked up on. He started off saying, I wish you were more mature. I wish you were growing spiritually, but you're not. And he literally called them babies. Remember that? That's where he started. Be encouraged. You're a bunch of spiritual babies. He talked about spiritual growth. I wish you had more of it. He talked about the role of the Holy Spirit. He talked about all of their quarreling and their fighting in the midst of this little church that's trying to be obedient to the word of God, but they're just banging heads with each other. And he says, oh, and by the way, stop suing each other as if that needs to be said. And then he goes into our personal lives, talking about what we should eat and what we shouldn't, what we should drink, what we shouldn't, getting up all in our business, talking about our sexual lives and what we should do in marriage and divorce and singleness and all of these very intimate details of our lives, talking about how they're struggling in these areas. A couple weeks ago, he talked about those disputable matters. What does it look like to follow God in obedience when Christians disagree with each other? And how do we enter into those spaces? And last week, Pastor Adam led us in how we are called to lay down our rights and our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. So that's where Paul has been leading us. And so the first nine chapters are just like a a barrage of topics. And just consider something for a moment. We've been in this book since January. We've been in this book for five months, and still it's been a lot, hasn't it? All these difficult topics that we've had to navigate. Could you imagine this little church reading this letter for the very first time? They're not taking months. It's one sitting. They're reading through all of it in one sitting. And it's not just like a hypothetical situation. It is written with precision to them. And they're a small church, not a big church. So you can't hide when Paul's talking about this. When he's talking about the sin issues, they have names on those situations. So it's just a barrage of topics. And this little church probably felt like um, one of those boxers in a Rocky movie, you know, just getting like pummeled in the corner. And then finally the bell goes off and Paul, he needs a rest. His hands are tired from pummeling your face. And so he says, you know, I just got to take a break. And I just have to imagine for myself, maybe he puts the quill down and he goes for a walk. Remember, he's in Ephesus. He's not in Corinth at this time. A city not unlike Corinth. And maybe he reminds himself of just how difficult and discouraging it can be to be a follower of Jesus. 
just how hard it is to remain obedient in the world today, both in the first century and in the 21st century, both in Corinth and in Abbotsford, that it is difficult to remain obedient to the word and the will of God. So maybe he starts praying for this little church, reminding himself that maybe, just maybe, this church needs a little bit of encouragement. That starting well is easy, but finishing well is hard. And I would have to assume that Paul finally makes his way back to his study, and you can kind of just feel that something has shifted. Something has changed from the last verse that we read last week to the first verse that we pick up today. So let me read the, this to you again. If you got your Bible, I hope you do. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24. If you don't have a physical Bible, pull out your phone, follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize circle that, highlight it, underline it, put a little squiggly mark there, whatever you do. One thing you have to understand is that the Corinthians were an athletic crowd. Every other year, they held their own version of the Olympic Games. In fact, they would sandwich it between the Olympics, both before and after, and they did it every other year. And it was known as the Isthmian Games. Say that 10 times fast. I-S-T-H, the Isthmian Games. And it was extremely popular. After the Olympics, it was the second most popular athletic event in the known world. And so Corinth loved their games. And it got its name because it was right next to an isthmus. If you don't know what that is, here's a, a picture of this. And so it's a body of land between two bodies of water that connects two different bodies of land together. And Corinth had exactly the same thing. This is where they led their games. And they also boasted a theater of more than 20,000 seats. They loved their games. And Paul is picking up on this, and he wants to speak to them in a way that they would understand. That is his goal. He wants them to get a sense of what they're talking about. So let me just show you what Paul is doing here in this text. Look again at your text. He says, uh, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? See that word race? That is the Greek word stadion, and that's where we get our English word stadium. Or you might see a couple times the word run. So he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Run in such a way to get the prize. That word run is the Greek word treko. And that's where we get our word for track. I'm going to a track meet. I'm going to go run on a track. Same kind of thing. But treko is a really interesting word because it speaks just as much to our attitude as it does our action. It speaks just as much to our motive as it does our motion. And so perhaps the greatest translation that we could use for the word run is to give it your all. To give it your all. So look again, Paul goes, let me use a sports analogy that everyone will understand, except for Pastor Adam, because he hates sports, but I'll explain it to you later on a whiteboard. Don't worry about it. But to everyone else, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners give it their all? And so run in such a way, give it your all in such a way that you will get the prize as well. 
He wants to motivate and to amp up this little church that is so incredibly discouraged and deflated. And then he says this in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's important. Take note of that. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. I love this picture. Every single person in this little church, when they get this letter, they, they know that Paul is talking about their games. He know, they, they know that he's talking about the Isthmian games. He says, you know the games well. And I've given you a lot to think about over the course of these last nine chapters. And I recognize that the Christian life in the world can be an incredibly discouraging place. But I want to encourage you. Run the race of faith in such a way that you are running to get the prize. And so here's the question that I want to lay at your feet. In the race of the Christian life, what does it take for us to run to get that prize? And I think there's five things, at least five things, that Paul identifies in this text. So here's what I want to do today. I want to review those things so that we can put that armor on and we can have the right perspective when it comes to running the race of life. And then there's a couple things that we might have to consider taking off so that we can be fully equipped to run this race well. So here's the first thing I put in your note sheet. Running to win the race takes faithful focus. Faithful focus. So here's a couple of litmus test questions that you can ask of yourself. It goes like this. What are you most enamored by in your life? What captivates your heart's affections? What takes most of your time? Where are you storing up all of your treasures? Is it in your job? Is it in your relationships? Is it in things that you're seeking to control? Is it your education? Is it your brain, your academics? Is it your leisure time? Is it your finances? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's kind of building up that nest egg for your golden years. Maybe it's vacations that are coming up and the leisure time that you're going to enjoy with your family. What gets the best of you? What are you amped up by? When you get up in the morning, what are you excited about? What motivates you? What gets the focus? What gets the greatest focus? Ask yourself those questions and very quickly you will be able to figure out where your heart's desire is. And then where it isn't. And I think those are important questions to ask. So then we can say, do I run the race of life in such a way where my eyes have been lifted and I catch the vision of Jesus that there is more to life than what my eyes currently see? It's not just about all the things that are in front of me, things that I can't take with me, but my eyes have lifted and I see what Jesus is calling me to do. And so, friends, 
There is more to life than the fleeting pleasures of the things of this world. And in fact, Scripture tells us that all the good things, whether it be beautiful vistas as you go for a walk, or good food, or good relationships, good friends, good work, all of these things are meant to be a gateway into seeing Jesus for who he truly is more clearly. But if we begin to put our trust in those things, our focus in those things, then they become distorted and evil things. It's called idolatry. And Jesus says, that's not good for your soul. It will not satisfy your soul. It was never meant to satisfy your soul. And yet as human beings, we do this all the time. So the question you have to ask yourself, with that mirror in view, you have to ask the hard questions. Where are my fo- where's my focus? Where am I spending all of my time? What am I investing in? These are important questions. And I think it's for that reason that the author of Hebrews writes this way in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what was his joy? You. You were the joy that was set before him. You were the reason why he came from heaven to earth and put on flesh. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So my friends, here's the question. What are you running after? What gets the focus Where are you spending all of your time? What are you investing in? Do you live your life in such a way that you recognize that life is short, but eternity is long? You have to answer that question. What gets the focus? Here's the second question. Running to win the race is going to take daily discipline. Daily discipline. I love verse 25. Look look again with this. uh, Look at this with me. It says... Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Strict training. Do you know that in the Isthmian games, in order to be able to run and to compete, you had to be running competitively for the minimum of a year, and you had to have your own coach. So you couldn't just show up on race day and say, yeah, you know, my friends, they say I'm pretty fast. I I think I could do this. I, I think I should show up for this race. No, it takes strict training. It takes discipline. And for those of you who are athletes, you know that there are certain days where you're just feeling the endorphins, you're excited to go out and to start running on the trail, but there's other days where it's a slog, and it takes everything just to show up to practice. It takes strict training. It takes discipline. And Paul is picking up on that theme. And let me just tell you something that you already know. Unlike physical training, where others can often see that you're kind of putting in the body of work. Maybe you're getting more slim. Maybe you're getting toned. You're getting stronger. Uh, You used to be able to run this fast. Now you're running that fast. You used to be able to jump this high. Now you can jump that high. There's all these physical markers that are showing that you are getting stronger. You're getting bolder. You're able to run faster. In the spiritual realm, it's not always so evident, is it? And I think it's for that reason where it is so easy in the Christian life to fake it till you make it. I think of a quote from Chuck Swindoll, pastor and author, and and he put it this way, and this just, it sits with me. He says, the scary thing about Christianity is that you can learn to do it. 
And what he means by that is you can very easily begin to start manufacturing your faith and then you start like projecting and mimicking other Christians and you kind of white knuckle your way through your faith and through religious circles. Then you're, you're kind of into performance and to projecting so that other people don't know that on the inside you are a hollow shell but you don't want other people to know that. You don't want other people to know that you're struggling with doubt, that you're having these issues in your life, that you're banging your head on the same sin issues you were 10 years ago. My goodness, I can't tell them that. So I'm just gonna get along, go along to get along. It's like what I call the parking lot miracle at church. How are you doing? I'm fine, everything's fine, we're all fine. Bless God, bless his name. But you know, you know that all week you've been struggling. You've been banging your head on stuff. And God wants you to bring it here. But we're projecting. And so Paul says, how easy it is to say, I want to follow God. How difficult it is to daily walk with God. How easy it is to say, I want to love my neighbor. How difficult it is to daily love your neighbor, especially the ones that are unlovable. How easy it is to start the race, but how difficult it is to finish the race and to keep the faith. And so Paul says, it is going to take daily discipline. Let me ask you, friends, can it be said of you that you are disciplined in the way that you walk with Jesus? Jesus wants to disciple you in this, but it cannot be a decision that you made 20 years ago. It must be a decision that you made today to walk with him in obedience. Number three, running to win is going to take sacrificial suffering. And I think this is probably the least uh, popular of the five that I'm gonna share with you. Sacrificial suffering. Are you going all out for Jesus? Look again at verse 25. A really interesting Greek word is used here. It doesn't really get picked up in our NIV translations. So your Bible, if you have the same one that we're using, it says everyone who competes in the games. You see that? Everyone who competes in the games. But if you have an ESV or an NRSV, it says every athlete who competes in the games goes into strict training. So it uses that word athlete. The Greek word here that's used is the word agonizomai. 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 Does that sound familiar than any other word that, that we use in English today? The word agony? That's where we get it. This is the reason why Julie doesn't run. She says, Justin, why would I run? It's agony. Is there a bear chasing me? Is someone coming after me? Why would I run? But here's the interesting thing. In the Greek language, what they're trying to do is to marry together an athlete and suffering. An athlete and suffering. And Paul says, the same thing is to be true of you. There is no such thing as a good and godly athlete. There's no such thing as a good and godly Christian who doesn't embrace suffering. Who doesn't embrace the agonizomai of life. And so here's my, my question to you. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? 
Have you considered the cost of the agonizomai of Jesus? To deny yourself daily, to pick up that cross daily, and to follow Jesus in obedience daily, even if it leads to suffering? See, there's a great myth that exists in Christian circles that we say the reason why I'm obedient to God is because if I make a commitment to him, he's going to make a commitment to me. And if he makes a commitment to me, then he's going to bless my life. And things are going to go well. Everything's going to be okay. So if your motivation to follow Jesus is smooth roads and soft landings, don't follow Jesus. He will mess you up. Don't follow Jesus for that reason. Every single Christian will experience the agonizo my of life. It is par for the course. But here's the difference. Every Christian, when they enter into that space, when they experience the agonizo my, when they go through the valley of the shadow of death, when they experience what many Christians before us have called the dark night of the soul, they also have the clarity and the conviction to say, God, I don't know why you're letting this happen. I don't know where you are in this. I can't even understand how this is part of your will, but I'm going to trust you. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. And I will fear no evil because you are with me. God, don't let go of my hand. Don't let go of my hand as I go through this valley. And I know that many of you here have experienced the dark night of the soul. I know that many of you have experienced the agonizomai of life. But it is the godly Christian who has embraced suffering who can use that experience to go deeper with Jesus. But if the only reason why you're walking with Jesus is because you want him to bless your life, then it's going to feel like a betrayal. Like Jesus isn't with you and that he's not blessing your life. It's a bait and switch. God, why did you let this happen? I followed you because you were going to bless my life. Scripture doesn't say that, friends. But it is a lie that we've bought into in Western Christian culture today. We need resilience and resolve to walk with Jesus. And so Paul wants to encourage you in that. He wants your eyes to be opened to see the challenges that come with following him. Number four, running to win is going to take integrity. Integrity. Verse 27 says, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that, hear this, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So again, Paul is using athletic terminology here, and the word that he uses for preaching is not the same word that he normally uses. The word he uses here, the best translation, would, would just be to announce the rules. That's what it means, to announce the rules. And so the image that should come to mind and would immediately come to mind for this little church in Corinth is like when a referee or a sporting official would gather all the contestants moments before the gun goes off to explain the rules. Now here's the point. Here's, here's what Paul wants you to see. Paul is saying, I don't want to say, here's what you got to do over here and then to live my life totally different over here. 
I want there to be integrity in my life. I want to do what I say and say what I do. I want to be a person of integrity. And so I don't want to um, be disqualified from the prize when I say, hey, you should all live this way, but, but I'm not living like that at all. One of the goals for me as a pastor and a wife and a father of four kids is that my kids would see me in such a way that when I'm preaching on Sunday morning at 10.54 and when we're hanging out Friday night at 7.30, I'm the same person. Now, I fall forward on that. I'm I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to lie in front of you. I, I fall all the time on that. But that's the goal, that's the desire that my wife, that my kids, that my close friends, when they observe my private life, they say, he's the same guy. He's exactly the same person. He's a person of integrity. And that should be said of all of us, that our desire is that we would be people of integrity who do what we say and say what we do. So let me just let you in on something. Do you know what the number one challenge an obstacle in my life is? It's me. It's me. I am the number one obstacle in my life. The thing that's always going to keep me from being the person God wants me to be is me. The greatest temptations I face, it's me. My desires, my pride, My ego, it's always me. It's not my circumstances. It's not people around me. It's not what other people have done to me or haven't done to me. It's not that I've gotten a bad uh, deck of cards in the game of life. It's me. And Paul picks up on that and he says, don't you see, this is what we need to lay down. The sinful desires of the flesh. And then I see it. If I want to get rid of the sinful desires of Justin, I need to live like Jesus. And if I want to live like Jesus, then here's what I have to do. I have to walk with Jesus. I have to follow Jesus. And it can't just be a decision that I made to intellectually believe in him 20 years ago. Because Jesus is always on the move. It's not if Jesus is on the move. It is where. And the question is, do I have the courage and the faith and the conviction to walk where Jesus walks? And to go with him on that journey. It is a daily decision. Not a commitment I made decades ago. It takes integrity. And number five. It's going to take a vision of eternity. A vision of eternity. I love what Paul says at the end of verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Then he says, they do it for a crown that will not last. I love that. They do it for a crown that will not last. So here's the problem that many of us face. So much of what I see is just a fixation on the stuff that is around us. That's not coming with us. Stuff that will never truly satisfy our soul. That will always leave us wanting more, no matter what it is. You want more money? Do you want more influence? Do you want more power or fortune or fame? Do you want more enjoyable sex? What do you want? But I promise you, whatever those things are, the end result will be, I need more of it. It will not satisfy your soul. It will always leave you longing for more because it can't. 
do those things. It cannot fill the God-sized hole in your heart. Only God can do that. And so we need a vision of something better. And so, so here's, here's what Jesus says. He says, Justin, I do want you to be successful. Yeah, I, I do want you to have treasures. I do want you to seek glory. But not here. <laughs> not here in this place where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal and you can't take this stuff with you anyway. Have you caught that vision to recognize that everything that you have and everything that you are is not coming with you and they are merely resources to help you be a kingdom citizen today. That we would catch this vision and then we would become risky Christians against the principalities and the powers of this dark age. That we would be willing to go all in, to give it our all for the sake of our faith. That we would use our gifts and our time and our talent and our treasure in such a way that we are totally convinced that none of it's coming with us. None of it's coming with us. So we might as well make the most of it to make the best contribution we can for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. But what do we do? What do we typically do? We hoard it. And we become fixated on the things of this world. And I don't know about you, but when the Lord takes me home and I step over the line into eternity and Jesus asks me that question, he says, Justin, what did you do with the race that I gave you? What did you do with the time that I gave you? What did you do with the wife that I gave you? With the kids that I gave you? With the resources I gave you? With the influence, the leadership I gave you? With the churches I had you serve? What did you do with the time, talent, and treasure that I gave to you? I do not want to say to him at that time, I'm sorry, Jesus, but I, I left most of it back there. Almost all of it's still back on earth. I want to say to him, I used all of it. All of it in the desire to expand your kingdom. That should be the desire of our hearts. Have you caught the vision of eternity? And recognizing that you spend, what, a couple decades and maybe if you're really lucky, you can live as long as Queen Elizabeth, 100 plus years. Like, in comparison to eternity, what is that? It's a drop in the bucket. And yet we spend all of our time focused and fixated on the things of this world. And so Paul says, run your life in such a way to get the prize in eternity. Look up, friends. Look up. And see the vision that God has laid before you. And then to make his point more clear, Paul does something really interesting. If your Bibles are open, look at chapter 10. I'm going to read 11 verses here. And he's going to give us a reminder of what happened in Israel's history. So he says this. 
I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. So where did we just go? He transported us all the way back to the book of Exodus. For those of you who do not know the story, the people of Israel, they were in bondage in Egypt for almost 500 years. And then God showed up on the scene and through 10 plagues, he brought the most powerful nation down to its knees and the people of Israel were able to leave free. The shackles are left behind. They go out into the wilderness. Then they come to the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground as a metaphorical baptismal ceremony that they are putting their trust in God in the midst of the waves that could fall down at any point in time. They walk through. The Egyptians chase them down. But in the final moment, God collapses the sea and they are washed away and the people of Israel are spared. And they rejoice. This is the high watermark for the people of Israel. And then they walk with God. God is in the form of a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Where the cloud goes, the people of Israel go. But very quickly, it goes downhill where they no longer put their trust in God and they begin to grumble and to complain and to say, where is God? It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. It would be better for us to die. And that's what Paul is picking up on in this text. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. This is sacramental language. This is the manna in the wilderness that they were given by God. This was the spiritual water from the rock that they were given so that all of their needs were taken care of. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Understatement of the day. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred, why? Get this, as examples. To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things just as they did. If that's not underlined in your Bible, it is in mine. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them. Why? Here it is again. He's sandwiching this so that you know as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So Paul starts with an illustration of the Isthmian games, and then he gives us an example from people who have played this game before. And rather than reading all of Exodus to you, there's just one story that I want to read to you now, which I think is the quintessential example of what God was doing to the people of Israel in order to test them. And it is the same test that every Christian in this room has to live with each and every day. So if you got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 16, starting at verse 2. Exodus 16, verse 2. Second book in your Bible. Pick up at verse 2 with me. 
in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow, dramatic. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, take note of it, and gather enough for that day. And in that way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So, so here's my question for you. My question is, how much manna were they permitted to collect every day? Enough for a month? For a year? A week? A few days? No. Enough for one day. Why? Paul already explained it to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. To test them, to put their faith in Jesus, who is the rock, Paul said it, to put their trust in God for each and every day. For every day, are we making that sort of commitment in our life? And then Jesus, he says this in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And the commitment is a daily commitment. Just to nerd out on the Greek, there is an active, present participle on each of those words, which means there's an ongoing commitment, not just once, but every single day. And then it becomes abundantly clear when Jesus teaches us to pray, and he picks up on the story of the man in the wilderness, and he says, here's how you should pray. Say this, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. See, for some of you here, the reason why your faith is so dry and Jesus seems so far away is because, this is a term that uh, Pastor Marcel and I just learned from Andrew Root a couple weeks ago, you're banking your manna. You're banking your manna. Your faith has far more to do with the decision to believe in him that happened long, long ago and far less to do with the decision you made this morning to follow him in obedience that we would walk with him every single day in the discipleship journey of faith. So we've talked a little bit about how the race is won, but I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about how the race is lost. Because as we do that, hopefully you can bridge the connections and with the mirror Bible in front of you, say, God, what are the things that I have to lay down today as I move forward in this? So two things. Ultimately, how to lose the race is just the inverse of everything we've learned. But two I want to put in front of you. Number one, it's where you focus on your desires and not God's. On your desires, not God's. Right now, I'm, I'm reading a book written by Alan Noble. If you like to read, I would strongly encourage you to pick this up. It is called You Are Not Your Own. And one of the things that he outlines in this book is the great cultural lie is that I am my own and I belong to myself. But here's what gets really unnerving about that. If you are your own and you belong to yourself, that you have to justify your existence every single day and it becomes futile and discouraging and that's why so many people are discouraged. Even successful people have lots of money, lots of relationships, lots of influence. They're still discouraged because none of those things truly satisfy their soul. And yet, 
there is a half-step truth, half-step lie that many Christians in the West believe. And it goes a little bit like this. They'll say something like, yeah, yeah I, I get it. You know, I, I, I belong to Jesus, but I'm still my own. I'm still my own. I want to have my cake and eat it too. So what that means is I give intellectual assent to Jesus. I believe he exists. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, but he's my consultant, not my Lord. I don't follow him in obedience. I just kind of want him on my team so that I can get some smooth roads and some soft landings and everything's going to be okay. And Jesus says that is not the discipleship journey. If you want true joy, unending joy, you're going to have to yield your whole life to me, to give yourself over to me. And so in a sense, what we do when we give intellectual assent to Jesus, but we don't follow him, we're functioning as kind of Christian atheists. We're living as though he doesn't exist. And here's the second one right on the heels of that. It's where we pursue the temporary and not the eternal. And we've talked about this already, but do you know what the winners of the Isthmian Games got? They got a wreath of celery. A wreath of celery! Oh, and a little bit of bragging rights, but let me just ask you a question by a show of hands. How many of you know at least one of the victors of the Isthmian Games in the first century? I don't see any hands. That's so strange. None of you have like a picture of them on your wall? No, that's it. They are forgotten. And the wreaths are most certainly forgotten. And they've put so much energy and effort into that, and yet it's gone. Let that be an encouragement to you as well in your own life that everything that you're doing, not, not to discourage you, but everything that you're doing eventually will be forgotten, but in glory it will not. In glory it will not. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Put that quality to the test in the way that you live your life today. And sure, some of you, you might be saying, Justin, I get what you're saying, but I've wasted so much of my life on temporary, finite things. Clearly, it's too late for me. Paul wants to encourage you. Here's how he ends. Look at verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So as you take things home today, here's the question I want to leave you with. What are you running after? What are you running after? What gets the focus? What gets the time? What gets the best of you, the energy? Do you have a daily purpose? Do you wake up in the morning and you say, God, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? Who would you have me talk to? How would you have me use my resources that you have entrusted to me so that I can help build and expand your kingdom in heaven as I live here on earth? Find me faithful, God. Find me faithful with the resources that you have entrusted to me. I recognize none of it's coming with me. Help me to be risky. Help me to advance against the principalities and powers of this dark age. Help me to be a threat, Jesus. I want to be that. 
and Gateway, how can we cultivate greater discipleship among people who are young and old? For those of you who are young, help remind us of that childlike faith that we once had when we were willing to go all in, to put it all on the line for our faith in Jesus. Help remind us of that. And for those of you senior saints where you've experienced some things, help us to be reminded to not put our trust in ourselves because you have spent time in what many have called that dark night of the soul where you have been on your knees and your knees have been bloodied as you've cried out to God. Remind us on how to pray, how to be people of integrity and how to finish the race strong. Only together can we learn to do this well. And ultimately, I want you to see that everything that the Apostle Paul has been communicating to us is found in the person of Jesus. That he fought the good fight. He finished the race. And he kept the faith. Who for the joy set before him, that's you, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He was the one who was willing to experience that treco, the going all out for you and for me. And so may it also be said of us, not that God the Father would one day say of us, Justin, well started, but that he would say of each and every one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.